and Sandra is going to bring us our rating. Good morning, church family. Um, thank you. I'm reading from Hebrews chapter 5, from verses 11 through to chapter 6, verse 12. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truth of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction and about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end, so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Good morning, church family. Uh, it'd be great if you could keep your Bibles open there. Uh, let us pray as we come to God's word together. Glorious Father, you are good and generous, and we ask today that you speak to us. Reveal yourself to us through your Son, in whom we have love and joy and hope. And in the power of your spirit, cause the gospel to bear much fruit in us, to the praise of your glory. Amen. I've never been more scared in my entire life. It was about midnight, and I was with my friend Scott. It was a warm summer's night, 20-odd years ago, and we would grabbed his dad's tinny, and we were out on the broadwater down at the Gold Coast. And uh, we weren't having much success fishing, and so we started to drift towards the seaway 
And uh, we'd hoped that we might anchor up along the, the rock wall of the seaway and, uh, and get, catch some fish there. Uh, now, the seaway down the Gold Coast is basically the plug hole of the region. All the water from the Broadwater and all the canals kind of all drain through that narrow channel. And uh, so as we neared the rock wall on that night, uh, I go to throw the anchor out, but there isn't enough rope. The anchor doesn't hit the bottom, and uh, the tide was actually going out pretty quickly. And so we're being sucked out through that plug hole. We could hear the waves kind of crashing in the distance behind us, and, um, and so we frantically try and start the motor. But the motor doesn't start. And uh, we were starting to freak out a little bit then. And, uh, but to our great relief, the anchor does finally strike. It grabs onto the bottom of the channel. Um, but because the current was going so fast, we're nearly pulled under. And we had probably about that much um, of the boat before the water would come over into it. So with the anchor uh, holding us there for the time being, we thought, oh, we should probably put our life jackets on now. It's probably a good moment. Uh, and so we go to start on the motor and it was not going. Uh, eventually, though, we did get it started. And uh, so we had this little horse, eight horsepower motor you know, going flat out and uh, we go to pull the anchor off and the anchor wouldn't come up. Uh, it was stuck on the bottom. The, the boat didn't have enough guts to kind of pull us off it. There wasn't really much rope. I was up on the front of the boat and uh, you know, kind of tugging on it, trying to get it to go loose and we were stuck. But finally it did let go and we just inched our way back, back to the boat ramp, back home. We were, uh, you know, we were fishless, we were traumatised, but we did have some dignity because we didn't die. Now, like that anchor that was firmly stuck and holding us to the bottom of the seaway, stopping us from being sucked out to probably death, with the thundering waves and the ocean, like that anchor, is Jesus. In chapter 6 of the passage we are looking at today, verse 19, Jesus says that he is an anchor for our soul and he gives us certain hope. So verse 19 says, We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. In the difficulties and the uncertainties of life, the one thing that we can bank on, the one thing that we can firmly tether ourselves to is Jesus. He is our better hope. He assures us of being rescued, of inheriting the promises of God. He is our sole anchor. And just as Scott and I were close to disaster on that night, so too the people who were the recipients of this letter to the Hebrews. And so they are given a strong warning, a warning of apostasy, followed by an encouragement which rests on the sure promises of God. Uh, you can see that in the outline above. Uh, the author wants his audience to have confidence in the certain hope of Jesus, that Jesus is the only way of salvation. But to have this hope, and to have the certainty of this hope, he needs to talk about this enigmatic guy called Melchizedek. Um, we're introduced to him in the verses previous to the ones that we're looking at. And so chapter 5, verse 10, if you've got your Bibles open there, you'll see chapter 5, verse 10, 
Jesus was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And then our passage today begins, we have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. There's some really important stuff that they need to know, but the author can't go on to talk about Melchizedek because there's a problem. The hearers are lazy, and they have been for some time. It's not that they're unintelligent, they are lazy. They can't be bothered to care about the theology that they need to know about. And if they continue without changing, they will end up in apostasy, a rejection of the faith of abandoning Jesus altogether. And so they need to be warned before the author can go on. So join me in verse 12, chapter 5, verse 12. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of the word of, of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, still being an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. But by this time in their Christian walk, they should have grown up and moved out of mum's basement. But they're still toddlers, like immature babies. Now when a baby learns how to hold a spoon and to feed themselves you know that there is no way you can get that spoon out of their mouth. You can't feed them anymore. They need to do it themselves and it gets pretty messy. But you know what? These people in Hebrews, they are even worse than these toddlers because at least these toddlers, they want to grow up. They want to feed themselves. They want to become adults. These people in Hebrews, well, they are lazy and they are forgetful. They are immature and they're loving it. It's not a pretty sight. It's well past time for them to move on to solid food, but they can only tolerate milk. They need to be taught the basics of Christianity over and over. Verses 13 and 14 tell us that their laziness has meant they're inexperienced with the message about righteousness. They can't distinguish between good and evil. They lack discernment. Imagine their lives would be a, a bit of a mess if they can't work out what is good and bad. And so the writer calls them to maturity. Chapter 6, verse 1 says, Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, and God permitting, we will do so. To safeguard them drifting off into apostasy, they are urged to go on to maturity. Not to abandon the basics of the gospel, which are derived from the Old Testament. Things like repentance and faith in verse 1. Like entering the community of faith with washings and baptism, the laying on of hands. And the future of resurrection and judgment. They need to build on these fundamentals that have their roots in the Old Testament with the rich theology of the New Testament about the person and work of Jesus so that they can realise the certainty of their hope in Jesus, their great high priest. If they don't grow up, if their laziness is left unchecked, it could lead to a total rejection of Jesus 
which is what we see in verses 4 to 8. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Now, these verses can be a little bit difficult to understand, but the important thing to remember here is the context. It really helps us. The whole of Hebrews is an encouragement to persevere, to keep enduring in the Christian faith, and and there are both positive affirmations and negative warnings that are interwoven to urge these Jewish Christians to not give up on Jesus, to not give up on Jesus and return to their old Jewish customs, because to do that, they would be throwing away their only hope of salvation. So the things listed in verses 4 and 5 are all Christian experiences, five blessings that every Christian experiences as part of God's gift of salvation to them, things like God enlightening us to know the truth of salvation, Tasting the the fruits of eternal life in community together. We experience the blessing of Christian community in the spirit as it all anticipates our eternal community in the new creation. But the last item in that list there, fallen away, is sometimes where some difficulty arises. It's an uncommon word that means to go astray. It means the sin of apostasy, of rejecting the truth of renouncing their confession of the faith that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And so the author says that whoever fits this description of these five Christian experiences plus apostatizes, well, they are unable to be restored to their initial repentance. God will not permit apostates subsequent repentance. And he illustrates this in verses 7 and 8, which follow. It says, for land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. The person who has experienced God's providence in the Christian church, yet produces only thorns and thistles, will face God's judgment rather than be blessed. I think here there's a strong allusion to Jesus' parable of the soils in, Matthew, in Mark chapter 4 and his teaching on recognising false teachers by their fruit in Matthew chapter 7. I think that's what the Hebrews author is doing there, is wanting us to think about those parables of Jesus. And I think at this point it would have been help, unhelpful for, the, for this audience if the author went and talked about the prodigal son that Jesus spoke of. Because if he did that, they wouldn't then take his warning seriously. What the author is doing here is warning these lazy Christians of the real danger of apostasy. It's a warning sign that says there's a cliff over there and you don't want to fall off it. So stay on the path and stay away from there. It's a warning like Scott and I had on that night out fishing that if we didn't take swift action, we would end up in disaster. Does this mean then that it's possible for genuine Christians to commit apostasy and to lose their salvation? 
Well, the author doesn't explicitly answer that question because that's not his main concern. Hebrews isn't written to allay the fears of a people who are unsure of God's ability to save them. They aren't worried about a doctrine of assurance. Hebrews is written to urge these Jewish Christians to keep holding on to Jesus and to not return to a Christless Judaism. He wants them to wake up from their slumber by giving them a hard and loving kick up the bum. It's a stern warning about what's possible if they continue their trajectory into outright apostasy. God won't grant them the ability to repent again because it would just be like re-crucifying Jesus, disrespecting him and shaming him all over again. So they hear this warning. They need to hear this warning, but have a look how they're encouraged to shake off their laziness. And the author actually doesn't think that they are in that category. Verse 9, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case. The things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realised. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. In verse 9, the author is confident of their initial faith, that they are not those who have fallen away because he's seen the evidence in their lives. They started out well in verse 10, their loving service of one another. But we also see that his confidence is garnered in the character of God. God will remember their fruit and he is not unjust. And so they're urged to resume their initial zeal in verses 11 and 12, to not be lazy, but through diligence and faith and perseverance and, and training and exercise to take hold of the certain hope that is theirs. That they might inherit the promises of God, just like the heroes of faith in chapter 11 of Hebrews. People like Abraham and Rahab and Samuel and Sarah, who through faith endured incredible hardship and suffering because they saw from a distance what it was that God had promised that he had promised them a better place, a heavenly one, the eternal city of God that he has prepared for those who endure in faith. Now, the raising of God's promises in verse 12 is the catalyst for what comes next in verses 13 to 20, where their hope of salvation is anchored in the certain promises of God through the persevering example of Abraham. So in verse 13, you see there that God made a promise to Abraham to bless and multiply him. That's referring to Genesis chapter 12. In verse 15, that promise came true for Abraham. After waiting patiently, God gave him a son of the promise. In verse 17, God sealed that promise with an oath. It's referring to Genesis chapter 22 there, where God recommitted himself to the promise after Abraham demonstrated his faith in offering his son Isaac. And so the grounds of our hope are in this, uh, is secured in the trustworthiness of God. But join me in verse 17, you'll see it there for yourself. 
Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things, that is, first of all, the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 and the oath in Genesis 22, God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. What ensures us that our hope of inheriting the promises of God is not a foolish thing to do is the character of God himself. He promises and he does not lie. And what is this hope set before us in verse 18? What is the Christian hope? This hope is like an anchor. See in verse 19. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. This hope anchor doesn't just grab the bottom of the seaway down at the Gold Coast like a boat anchor. No, verse 19 says it enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Here we're caught up into an extraordinary vision of the heavenly temple, the dwelling place of God, the throne room. And it is there where our eternal hope is secured. Our hope is firmly tethered there. Verse 20, where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is that anchor for our souls. He has embedded himself in the glorious presence of God through his atoning work as our great high priest. And as a forerunner, he has paved the way for all those who through faith and perseverance will join him in the eternal kingdom to come. The reason why this hope is firm, it is certain, it is secure, is because it is grounded on the character of God who does not lie and in the finished work of Jesus, our great high priest. Because he is a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The solid food that these Christians in Hebrews need to eat is the solid theology about Melchizedek the eternal priest, and we'll return to that next week. And I hope you'll come and, and feast on this sustaining, solid food that God has for us. Melchizedek here is the key to understanding how our hope in Jesus can be firm and secure. Now, as this passage may raise questions about our doctrine of assurance, the thing you need to know about assurance is that it doesn't come from within you. Assurance doesn't come from how much faith you have or how few doubts you might have. Assurance doesn't come from assessing your good works or your good intentions, nor the spiritual fruit that you're hopefully bearing. Assurance comes from above. It's anchored in the character of God who does not lie and in Jesus' finished work on the cross. Here in Hebrews, it's expressed in this way. Our assurance comes because of Christ's eternal priesthood. Because Jesus lives forever in the heavenly temple, in the new Jerusalem, we today can have certain hope and full assurance. Friends, as we wrap up this section in Hebrews, I want to encourage you to hear the warning that has been given to us today. Don't be lazy in your faith. Don't relax your grip of faith in Jesus. 
Don't ever think that you've peaked as a Christian and that you don't need to keep growing. Rather, let us eat the solid food that God provides for us in the Scriptures. The nourishing rain of the Gospel that falls and provides growth. Let us go on to maturity together, growing in our knowledge of Jesus, bearing the fruit of righteousness and holiness, the beautiful fruit of the spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Let us do this so that we may endure to the end. And let's do this together. Friends, in all the uncertainties and hardships we face, don't settle for the small and uncertainties of hopes in this life. You may have hopes for a life with less hardship and less pain, less anxiety. These are things that we really should rage against as part of this fallen world. But let us rather take hold of the bigger and better and glorious hope that is found in Jesus alone. He'll bring about these things but far more than just those things. And he'll bring them about in his time, in eternity, in the resurrection, where there will be no more pain or frustration or disappointment or death. The list in chapter 11 of faithful men and and women are to be an example for us to follow and to imitate because they did not give in to a puny hope of this life, but they lived for their eternal home. I want to encourage you to have the hope, have that big, glorious hope that Jesus gives us today. And the certainty of this hope only grows as we deepen our knowledge of Jesus, as the Spirit leads us into all truth. In all the uncertainties and hardships of life, the one thing we can bank on, the one thing we can firmly tether ourselves to is Jesus. Jesus is our better hope. He assures us of being rescued, of inheriting the eternal promises of God. He is our sole anchor. And so let Jesus and the sure hope of salvation he promises us fuel our endurance in the faith until he returns. And let us do that together. I want to take a moment when we head outside shortly to share a time when your hope in Jesus has helped you through a difficult time. How Jesus, your better hope, encourages you to endure. Let us pray. Glorious Father, we thank you that in Jesus we have a better hope because he is our sole anchor. Help us to not be lazy, but through faith and endurance grow into mature believers. Help us, Father, to declare this only hope amongst the nations and help us to do this together as your word dwells richly among us by your spirit. Amen. Thank you, Steve, for speaking God's words to us this morning.